0: Cats and kittens, we are back with another very special stay at home self quarantine episode of the Brando cast. And you kiddies know we've had so many interesting guests on this show. We've had actors, we've had comics, we've had punk rock legends, people from the world of rock and roll. But for the very first time, ho, 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 we have someone who has actually performed on Broadway. Her credits include Lennon, The Wild Party, The Vagina Monologues. Failing a class act, The Landing Saved and Crimes of the Heart. But you also might know her from Wicked as well. And if you've ever heard my guest today sing Defying Gravity, you know that you are in the presence of greatness. So without further ado, I present to you Julia Murney.
1: (laughs) All I can do is laugh. I don't know why.
0: Here is the crazy thing about Julia Murney. She has actually known me longer than nearly any single person that's in my current life today, except for my goddamn brothers and my mom and dad. I love that story. (laughs) Well, let's just fill everybody. And then in the summer of 1985, Julia and I between, uh, well, I won't say where we were in high school, but. We were students at the Summer Theater Program at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, or as people in Pittsburgh would say, Carnegie Mellon. Ch- we were there for the whole summer, and we may have even made out a time or two. We may have, indeed. And, and then one of the first times I ever visited New York was not long after that. I went to New York, and we saw Ferris Bueller together somewhere in Manhattan. So welcome, my old friend thank you my old friend how are you
1: i'm okay you know i hate this shit and honestly not this shit talking to you i mean this shit this pandemic shit and i will like in in full disclosure ladies and gentlemen and uh, those have yet to decide right before this like an hour ago i was walking my dog Uh, I went to see a friend who has just moved back to the city. She moved in three blocks from me with her new dog. We had a lovely visit, and I was walking the three blocks from her apartment to my apartment when an insane person poured his beer all over me. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And not that he didn't, he like flung the liquid at me. He didn't flung, he didn't throw the can at me, but he flung, I mean, I got soaked with beer. And when I tell you that it unlocked a rage inside of me, that I started screaming at him because he wasn't a kid who was being an asshole, who I was going to like learn something. He was clearly not right in the head. But I also, I don't know if this is growing up in New York City or what, I could immediately smell not dangerous, just touched and probably on drugs. And I started screaming at him. I mean, I like at the top of my lungs in a way that I do not scream like this. And the basic like tenant of my thesis of screaming was at one point I said, I did not fuck with you. You do not fuck with me. Uh Uh-huh. I said that. And, um, as people are eating outside in these like curbside kiosks that everyone's had to build because of this pandy, as I like to call it. And, um, and he like sort didn't run away from me, but sort of kept his distance because we were still, and he was just yammering because he was crazy. And then he went into the CVS and I was like, well, he's theirs now. And I walked home and totally started crying, like just filled with rage, rage. And, and I had to take a shower because I was covered in beer. So that's where I am. You're welcome.
0: Wow. Okay. <laughs> Okay, quick timeout. We are visiting each other via the power of technology. Are you in Manhattan right now? I
1: am indeed uh, in New York City.
0: Uh, where did this incident take place?
1: Here on the Upper West Side, which is generally... Look, I saw him coming. Like I'm like, boop, 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 boop. I'm not like somebody who's got headphones on and I've closed myself out to the world. I totally was aware of him. I clocked him, but I did not think that he was... Not clocked physically. I just like mentally clocked him. And uh, But I was like, oh, Okay. Frankly, the only thing I was concerned about was my dog, who did not get a drop of beer on. She's little, too. She she was more frightened that I was screaming because she's never seen me in that manner. And so when we got home, I just got down on the floor and, like, told her it was okay, <laughs> whatever. But, yeah, I mean, it's – look, everybody's going through it. And I try – I I think that's why I was like, I don't fuck with you. You don't fuck with me. Like, I just was like – I. Here's the truth. Brandon, doesn't matter if you volunteer or or donate or whatever. He's still crazy. That dude is still crazy. It has nothing to do with me. I did not nothing to invite his crazy, but I was there in his vision and he I guess didn't want that beer anymore. He was his his thirst had been quenched and he was ready to get rid of that beer.
0: You grew up in Manhattan? I did. <laughs> So, where I am sure that you have had your share of moments in the city, correct? Yes, but not that many. Which is wow. I mean, yes. Look, let's be clear.
1: Definitely, but I feel like when people think of growing, they're like, "Oh, you've been mugged fifteen times." I've actually never. Is this true? I've never been mugged. I'm touching wood now. I've never been mugged. I've been stalked. Sure, by by a fan. I, I was a kid. I was. I was in junior high. And it went on for a little while and I didn't tell anybody because I was a kid. I don't know. I, I guess I just thought he worked at a construction site that was down the block. I grew up on the Upper West side. So I grew up like five blocks from where I live now. And, um, that part, that was scary. This is like total (laughs) people have definitely, um, uh, tuned in for this story, But, but basically long, super long story short. Uh, one day he followed me into the library and, uh, I saw him and like, Went to an area where there was a librarian. Didn't say anything still. And he came over right near me. And then I like went past him, went upstairs to the kids department, the kids area where the little tiny chairs were and stuff. And he came up the stairs. And that's when I knew he was like, until then, I was like, it's a free country. It's a free country. He, he's allowed to use the library. And then once he came upstairs, I was like, "He's he'd been talking to me for weeks anytime I walked by. So And he shoved me onto the ground. And a girl who I went to junior high with, who ended up, sidebar- playing um, uh, Amy Fisher in one of the made-for-TV movies about Amy Fisher and Jodie Botofuco. She had not played Amy Fisher at this point because that had not happened, but she happened to be standing there returning a book, and she saw it all happen, and she grabbed me and pulled me. She moved faster than any of the librarians moved. And then we went home, and I told my dad. And my, I watched my dad go because the guy was just back at the construction site hanging out. And my dad went down there. My dad's not a tall man, but he's an Irish spark plug. And um, and I watched out the window as he screamed at this dude and said, "Don't you ever fucking come near my little." And uh, yeah. Wait,
0: but that, uh, wait, was that actress Noelle uh, Parker? Was yes. <laughs> wait, why do you know that? Because I know, I used to know Noelle. I mean, lost to the sands of time, but Noelle and, I, Noelle and I used to go to the same silly dog park at the very top of Beechwood Canyon oh. in Los Angeles. And I think she dated an, a friend of mine a million billion years ago, but I used and to know Noelle really well. Oh, yeah. Really? Mm-hmm, yeah. As soon as you said that, I knew you were talking about Noel.
1: Oh, my God. I cannot believe the the symbiosis of that.
0: Wow. Wow. Holy Christ balls. Well, look, here's the deal. I am so glad that you just had to deal with a little bit of beer. No, with a lot of beer on you because you're drenched. Uh, I'm so glad that it didn't escalate that. So if I can do anything for the next 50 odd minutes to to at least bring some fun into your evening, that would make me very happy.
1: Buddha, Allah, and the baby Jesus—that I had somewhere to come and be. Uh, like otherwise, I'd just be sitting here in my filth. <laughs> Instead, I actually took a shower and got got myself together.
0: Okay, well, you look amazing and you sound amazing. So let us get into the fun. So when I asked Julia to come on the show, I know that Julia has a very big new wave history, and I know that she loves the artist Paul Young. <gasps> but when I said, "Who do you want to talk about today on the Brando Cast?" Wow. She threw one of the giants down on the table. So without further ado, Whitney Elizabeth Houston was an American singer and actress and is one of the best-selling recording artists of all time. With sales of over 200 million records worldwide, Houston released seven studio albums and two soundtrack albums, all of which have been certified diamond, multi-platinum, platinum, or gold. Houston's crossover appear on the popular music charts as well as her prominence on MTV influenced so many young artists as well. She's the only artist to have seven consecutive number one singles on the U.S. charts. From Saving All My Love for You in 1985 to Where Do Broken Hearts Go?, in 1988. Houston's first two studio albums both peaked at number one on the Billboard charts and are among the best-selling albums of all time. Tell me, Julia Murney, why Whitney Houston? I think the question is, why not Whitney <laughs> Houston? It's
1: a very hard—I I feel like a, a lot of your guests have said this, and it's so true. Like, it's very hard to pick one, you know, when, when you're asked to pick one, because— I mean, my immediate thought was Paul Young because you know the way that I love Paul Young and that we should be married. But um, but for for some reason, just thinking about someone with like the breadth of of a um, of a career, uh, Whitney is the the one, and that's why I was curious if you would hit her. Uh, you know, like because someone m- might have said her, her name, but no one had. So I get her, and I do feel I. Uh, I saw her debut concert at Carnegie Hall. It, oh, oh! You know what? I believe it was the fall after you and I met. It was fall of '85. I'm almost positive. And I don't remember. I remember who I went with—friends of mine from high school. I don't, but I think somebody got tickets. I. I don't, I don't know like the wheres and hows of it occurring, but I remember we sat, we were high up on a high ring at Carnegie Hall and on the side, but we actually had a great bird's eye view of the aisles and we watched like Eddie Murphy arrived and Ashford and Simpson arrived and like all these luminaries, so that was very cool for us because we were just like goobers up the, up in the things, and she came out. This was, I mean, to to the general public. Brand a new Whitney, you know this was her first album. I can't remember if it was called Whitney or Whitney. Who's like she? Had, she had several like named albums, but I don't remember the order of them. This was Saving All My Love before she really crossed into like the, the kind of pop pop where she was still in R and B land. And I remember that she wore white, which is a color that it, it's so funny. It seems it sounds like such a simple color, but for whatever reason, she knew how dynamite. She I feel like she knew how dynamite she looked in white because if you look through her career, through the years, she wore white, I feel like, more than any other color. Like a bright angel white. And what I remember so specifically from that concert was she sang this song called I Am Changing, which is from the musical Dream Girls, which was my musical jam. And she sang I Am Changing in a manner that was like, no one else has ever sung this song. And at the end of the song... It's supposed to go, I'll change my life, I'll make a vow, and nothing's gonna stop me now. That's how it ends. However, she went, I can't really do it, obviously, but she went, I'll change my life, I'll make a vow, (laughs) <laughs> she dropped, and then she stopped and she dropped her hands and she dropped her head back and stopped the, the phrase the song wasn't done and when i tell you that in that moment all of carnegie hall stood up they stood and screamed and screamed and screamed and and it felt like it was five minutes long it probably wasn't but in my brain it was five minutes long and finally, she like the screaming, but everyone was still standing. And she like slowly looked back at the audience and went, "And nothing's gonna stop me." Uh. Nah, and it was the. Sh- I mean, I have chills thinking about it. Was it was like seeing a lion or seeing a like uh, the the release of the good Kraken. It it was like confidence and power and artistry and zero fucks to give and all of these things all happening at the same time. And um, it it was remarkable. It was remarkable.
0: I am going to say just you telling that story gave me chills. (laughs) And I will also say I can, because of the way that you told that story, I could feel every single entertainment lawyer and business executive who was there that night realizing we are all going to make a billion kabillion dollars.
1: Oh, I, how could they not? I mean, yeah, which I, I suppose in a, in a certain way, I feel like I look at the, the, the unfolding of her career and then what happened to her in the end and all it's like, it's almost like if you could just bottle that moment and stop it and just stop what happened, because I feel like, I don't know, have you seen, did you see the Britney Spears documentary?
0: Yes, I did. Just the other night.
1: Okay, okay good good on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to watch that, and regardless of what you think of, like, her talent, if it's your jam or not, you just go, they did her dirty. They did Britney dirty. They did Whitney dirty. They did, Mar- Mariah had her crack, her, uh, not crack cocaine, I mean, her mental moment. And, like, any female artist who rises to a certain level, I don't understand. I mean, for Whitney, on the one hand, I think about, I am not equating myself with Whitney Houston in any manner and what I'm about to say, but this is the most absurd equation. Doing Wicked, if you happen to know the musical Wicked, if you don't happen to know the musical Wicked, you've probably heard of it. And it's, and I was the green witch and which meant I had to sing a lot. In the show. And I had to sing very high and I had to sing at a very intense, belty level, eight shows a week for people who wanted to hear it in a certain way. And if you watch Whitney through the years, especially in any kind of live cuts through the years, when she was younger... Her musicianship is uh, uh, so unbelievable, what she can do and how she can play with a melody, but and the purity of her voice is unmatched. But as time goes, you hear her singing the melody less and less live because it's, it's pitched up in a, in a way that your chords are just like, oh my God, help me. Now, if you add in perhaps abusing yourself and, and your chords, like the thing that you love is usually the thing that betrays you immediately. Your chords will betray you. And if they get swollen, it's such a tiny little muscle. It's really hard. You, you can't wrap it up like a, like a tennis player or put like that funky tape on it or anything. So as time goes by and you can't quite sing the way you used to sing, however, everyone wants you to sound the way you sounded I understand why Barbara Streisand didn't sing for all of those years. Cause if all if you feel that all people want is for you to sound like 19-year-old Barbara Streisand, 19-year-old Whitney Houston, and you're 32, you're not going to sound the same. What do you do? And what that does to you mentally? And then I think of any of those women again, like with those instruments. Again, it this is sort of an unfair equation. But I know what it feels like to spend 3 hours every night where all of the attention to a certain degree is on you. Everyone is l- listening to you, tending to you, screaming for you, clapping for you. Multiply that by like an arena tour or th- whatever yeah. and then and then you finish that night at Madison Square Garden and you go back to your hotel room. And all I know is that after certain nights, especially when I was on tour and everything is such a bustle and a hustle and whatever, when the hotel room door shuts at the end of the night, it feels very quiet and not always in the great way. No wonder so many people become drug addicts and alcoholics because you're just trying to fill the t- fill, fill a void.
0: Well, there's also an energy wave yes Uh, there's also an energy wave that you cannot recreate with drugs that you can only get when you are on stage and you have thousands of people adoring you but there's there's music behind you and there's percussion and there's just sound and it's just energy and to go back to a hotel room and it's just dead and silent i mean and and you don't want the party to end that'll take you down too Born in Newark, New Jersey, on August 9th, 1963, Whitney Houston began singing in church as a child and became a background vocalist while still in high school. In fact, Whitney comes from a very prominent singing family. Her mother, Sissy, was a member of the Drinkard Singers, and her first cousin is Auntie Dion, Dion Warwick. In 1983, Jerry Griffith, a young A&R representative from Arista Records, saw Houston performing with her mother in a New York City nightclub. He convinced Arista's Clive Davis to make time to see Whitney perform. Davis did, got it right away, and he signed Houston to Arista when she was just 19. Simply titled Whitney Houston, the singer's first LP, was released on February 14th, 1985. The album initially had a slow commercial response, but began getting more popular in the summer of 1985 it eventually topped the billboard 200 for 14 weeks generating three number one singles saving all my love for you how will i know and greatest love of all which made it both the first debut album and the first album by a solo female artist to produce three number one singles houston would then go on to win a grammy for this song summer 1985 that's when you and i met Come on now. That's, Come on. That's when I saw Live Aid. That's when I took a time out from school.
1: I, yeah, wait, wait, wait. So We need to rewind this yep. because I I distinctly remember it must have been that Live Aid weekend was parents' weekend for that Carnegie Mellon thing. Here's why I know this. Because my parents came to town. Why the hell else are they in Pittsburgh? And I, because I got to watch Live Aid from their hotel room.
0: Well, uh, my dad, you know, I was born in Pittsburgh. But my parents divorced in 1980, and my mom moved us to New Mexico. My dad subsequently moved to Philadelphia, and he was living in the Palace Hotel where a whole mess of the rock stars at Live Aid stayed, and he got uh, tickets via the concierge and cut to me, cut to, cut to me getting on a plane and flying to Philly just for that show.
1: Now, t- top top three, top three who performed that day for you?
0: Uh, top three, well... For me, you know, it was a really big deal that Led Zeppelin had reunited, even though they weren't that great. It was a very big deal for me that Black Sabbath reunited for that event, even though they weren't that great. Um, I remember for some reason- Why were they not that great? uh, Why did you feel- Well, because Ozzy was a mess in 1985. Okay, okay, okay. okay. And it was just awkward and intense and everything. Madonna was amazing.
1: I can see what she was wearing in my head.
0: Duran Duran, I thought, did a very nice job. I remember Tina Turner. Um, I remember I remember the Hooters because I made my dad get up at six o'clock in the morning so we would be there for the beginning of the show. Like we didn't get there halfway through. I made were the Hooters
1: were the Hooters from Philly?
0: Yeah, they were. But yeah. they but they had had a couple hits. But they opened they opened the day, and that was at like nine thirty or ten o'clock in the morning. Um, but the thing that was the most memorable thing about my experience at Live, Aid, because my dad was living in the palace. When we were leaving, I saw Rick Springfield get in a limo to go to go to the show. When we got back to the Palace Hotel, everyone was staying there. I rode on an elevator with Joe Piscopo because I went down to the lobby to get like, you know, a Coke or something like that. And everyone was everywhere. Tom Petty was there. I saw Bob Dylan walk in the doors with Ronnie Wood and Keith Richards Cause they had performed. That was a big deal. They had performed the three of them together. Cause the stones were kind of split up at that point. Jagger did his thing with Tina Turner and, uh, and Bob Dylan performed with Keith and Ronnie, my friends, Keith and Ronnie. Uh, yeah. And then <laughs> I look, our room was on the seventh floor, looking down on the, on the pool. And I watched all night long. I mean, late into the night what I saw Eric Clapton's poolside you know, all these other characters just roaming around. And then Mick Jagger came to the hotel around three or four in the morning. There were tons of fans. There were still young Philadelphia fans in front of the hotel. When Jagger came to the hotel, he got out of a limo. And instead of darting inside the hotel, he ran across the street, almost as if intentionally to cause a commotion. The crowd went crazy. And then he ran back in the hotel. So for me, the whole experience was, you know, staying in the hotel was just as cool as going to the show.
1: it's so funny because I realize like i don't I don't go to concerts so as much anymore I like really, i I don't know why it's like such an ordeal or whatever. I don't know why, but as you were naming off those people, like I saw Madonna in concert, I saw Tina Turner in concert, I saw Rick Springfield in concert, I saw Duran Duran in concert, <laughs> like back then I went to concerts. And it's so sad that I don't
0: anymore. Well, um, well, it's still a colossal part of my life. I mean, I, it's... I know, it's, I know. That's, bit, why that's I, what I do. I still go to concerts, although so I prefer going to like little clubs to see some of my favorite bands because, you know, most of my heroes... Uh, grunge before grunge nirvana before nirvana that's that became my wheelhouse
1: is, is that is 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 going to a concert like that when you talk about like the when we were talking about the energy and stuff and impossible to replicate i mean i would think just yes there's the energy of of, of certain concerts but the energy i would think of like a grunge concert of a of a frankly a, like a metal concert or whatever is so like Like I could tear a can with my teeth kind of a thing that that for you, it's a high as much as it is the whoever is performing
0: the part the uh, people who listen to this podcast know the answer to this. But the group that I have seen more than anybody else, 39 times is Iron Maiden.
1: Yes, I knew that. (laughs)
0: And I've seen Iron Maiden at Madison Square Garden, which it was also like for me, an experience that I will never, ever forget because it was so fucking amazing. And the building felt like the building was shaking, Mm -hmm. you know, because all the metalheads from the tri-state area are there to see Maiden. I mean, I just love it. And also, uh, as you may have heard, I have actually performed. I am not a musician. You know this. But I have, for my birthday before the pandemic, I would put together a band every year. You will again. And I will again. And I can't wait to. But um, um, I cannot wait to. But uh, just, you know, one one time a year. All I need is one day a year where I get up and shake my ass in front of people doing Bowie, Iggy, T-Rex, Cheap Trick, Kiss. So I I have felt that thing that musicians crave and chase. Like when you watch the clips of um –
1: Freddie Mercury during live aid doing the day-o, day-o, and, and the and the audience just call them responsing after him.
0: That's real power. That's th- what a you can't describe
1: yeah, that, that's, it. It's just
0: that's real power.
1: And you can and you can get off on it as an audience member, as long as you're not, you know, being trampled in the front or something weird.
0: <laughs> before I read more about Whitney Houston, do you want to know what my, the last live show I saw before the pandemic? I do. Kiss and David Lee Roth at the Staples Center.
1: Really? And scale of one to 10? Uh, six. Oh.
0: Whitney is Houston's second studio album was released on June 2nd, 1987. The album features five yeah. top 10 hits on the U.S. charts, which also became international hits. The album's first four singles, I Want to Dance with Somebody, Didn't We Almost Have It All, So Emotional, and Where Do Broken Hearts Go, all peaked at numero uno in the US, making Houston the first female act to achieve four number one hits from one record. Along with three straight number one singles from Houston's previous album, this gave the singer an unprecedented seven consecutive number one hits, surpassing the Beatles and the Bee Gees, who each had six. The album received three nominations, including Album of the Year, with Houston winning Best Pop Vocal Performance, Female, for I Want to Dance with Somebody. With sales of over 20 million copies of worldwide, Whitney is one of the best-selling albums of all time. I know you love the Bee Gees. I'm, I do love the Bee Gees and the Beatles. I, so, I'm so
1: funny. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. But them, too. I love them.
0: Did you love the, the, uh, the Bee Gees documentary?
1: Yes, I did. I feel so, I feel so sad for Barry Gibb when he said, I, like, basically, I'm paraphrasing him, like, something about, I'm the only one left in my family. You're like, oh, my, like, Barry Gibb's songwriting acumen is basically, unpar- like, him and um, Elton John and Bernie Taupin, like, they are absolutely, Lennon McCartney, like, I don't know a lot of, it, it's extraordinary. It's
0: extraordinary. I. I am a colossal fan of the 60s BGS. Gees. I, yes. I, I have it all. I love it so much. It's a totally different band. It's a completely different genre of music. It's still pop. But to your point, it's, um, it is insane to me that that man and those brothers could collaborate to create multiple colossal, earth-changing hits in different genres.
1: Totally. And throughout the decades of, I mean, it sounds like someone going to them and being like, whatever. We've got Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Can you write something for them? And he's not going to write something like night fever for them. Night fever was a specific, well, frankly, Dolly Parton, she's another songwriter like that, like like
0: her. And she will come up, she will come up soon in this discussion, of course.
1: Oh man, man. Her, her, her songwriting is, is extraordinary. And the way that songwriters like, you know, she came up with nine to five, the, the rhythm of nine to five came from her clickety clacking, her nails clickety clacking on her and uh, Barry Gibb talking about the, the riff for um, jive talking. The, it's something I don't write music. I don't know like that. It lives in you and you hear something like that and it makes something else vomit out of you. That is the prettiest vomit ever.
0: Okay. Let's, let's talk about you as a performer. Cause we haven't even touched on that. When did you start singing? Did you just start singing right away? Because your father was a straight actor, right? No, he I mean, he was he was in two Broadway musicals,
1: um, but he wasn't really a singer or a dancer. He was like hired to be like the the funny character guy. S- I didn't start singing till I was in junior high uh, because uh, basically because we had moved to L.A. for two years because my dad uh, got a TV series. It's a terrible TV series. And so we moved out there and the series got canceled. And we moved back to New York. And the, the people that I knew at the junior high who had been in the elementary school that I had been in in New York before we left, they, were, they had all decided they were going to do choir. So I was like, okay, me too. I just followed like a sheep into choir. And Miss Morris, Miss Josephine Morris, who was the, the choir director there, she was everything. She changed my life just in the way that she taught music and the appreciation she gave us all for music. And we would do these choir competitions where we would sing like Italian and all this. But then we, there would also be like the spring concert where we absolutely not only sang uh nine to five and did like theatrical movements. Too. It was basically show choir, but we didn't know what show choir was. We did not have that in New York city. Um, but we also definitely sang come together that's not appropriate for a junior high choir, but we sang it. And and it was in that choir, like, here come old flat top, he come grooving up. It's like, what's happening? But we did it. And then I went to high school as a voice major uh, to the, basically, it's the fame school. It's a school that fame is based on. and And I went to a summer camp. The two summers before you and I met, I went to a theater camp. And that's where I did my first show.
0: And was there someone at that theater camp that went, oh, okay, Julia, you have some pipes. You're great. You can do this.
1: I mean, they got more confidence in me. It was sort of like a simultaneous. I didn't really have any confidence. And I wasn't like the kid who, who, like, because everyone has to audition because everyone gets placed into a show. And I wasn't like, holy cow, who's this girl? I was like, oh, okay, cool. She can carry a tune. So as time went on, like I was in the chorus of the first show I did and the second show I did, I had like two lines, but then someone left camp. So I got bumped up into her part and I had a bunch of lines. And then the next summer, always playing totally inappropriate characters. The next summer I played a stripper in Gypsy and I played Anita in West Side Story. And um, those are not appropriate, But, but there I was. It was sort of a a lot of like, I really liked it, but I wasn't like, this is for me. This is the, sometimes I think that if my dad had been a pharmacist, I I could have been like, well, I guess I could be a pharmacist. (laughs) Like it was sort of like, that's what I know. So I guess I could try that. And then I went to Syracuse for musical theater. And, um, and then when I, I graduated, I mean, I, I, I worked ish, but didn't do anything of note for like 10 years. After college, uh, in terms of musicals, I got into voiceovers and that was the thing that like, let me live. Commercials, um, cartoons, yeah. Mer- whatever. Commercials. Um, Like I was the first person to say period on national television. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, but uh, the thing that totally changed my life was this show called The Wild Party that uh, this gentleman, Andrew Lippa, Andrew Lippa wrote. And I I met him right when he had just started to write the show. And so I was involved with the in the creating of the show from its infancy. And in the actual production of the show, I played opposite your friend, Mr. Brian Darcy James, who I had already worked with. So that was that was wonderful. And he's, you know, a, an incredibly special human being, let alone an incredibly special performer. And um, and he would beat the hell out of me every night. So, oh, uh, yeah. In what
0: way would he beat the hell out of you?
1: That was what the show was about. We, we played a couple, a very very dysfunctional couple uh who throw a party that is it takes place in the 20s and it's booze and drug filled and uh and in in the end my my new lover for the evening played by Tay Diggs shoots Brian Darcy James to death at my feet and then I sing a ballad very high and dramatically wow tay diggs yeah that's
0: right <laughs> you know quick tangent i will say this about mr brian darcy james You know, uh, when I was in college, there were some very many talented people, some people who've gone on to do many, many fabulous things. But he was all from the day I got there. He was for me. He was always the standout. It's like that guy has goddamn talent.
1: He also marries really well. His wife is a phenomenal person, too. uh
0: Houston's third studio album, I'm Your Baby Tonight in 1990, yielded two number one singles, I'm Your Baby Tonight and All The Man That I Need. It was also certified quintuple platinum. More importantly, Houston made her acting debut with the romantic thriller, The Bodyguard in 1992, starring opposite some dude named Kevin Costner. She recorded six songs for the film's soundtrack, including Dolly Parton's Ode to Porter Wagner, I Will Always Love You. The soundtrack won the Grammy Award for Album of the Year and remains the best-selling soundtrack of all fucking time. Houston starred and recorded soundtracks for two other high-profile films, Waiting to Exhale in 1995 and The Preacher's Wife in '96. with the latter soundtrack being the best-selling gospel album of all time. Let me just say, there's two things I want to ask you about. One is Clive Davis. Two is, I am late to the power of Dolly Parton. It's power. I had a wall up because of my love of punk rock and heavy metal and all that. I had a wall up for country. And I would say six or seven years ago, Johnny Cash burst through that wall for me. He just broke down the wall. Mm -hmm. And since then, I have consumed as much what I would call vintage country, 60s, Maybe to the early 70s. After that, it loses me. I love Amy Lou Harris, uh, and I love Roseanne Cash, and I've seen Roseanne Cash in concert a few times. But going back to the 60s, 60s Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, George Jones, 60s Loretta Lynn. So when I relax at night, I will often watch episodes of the Porter Wagner show on <laughs> YouTube where a young Dolly, who is... A fully formed artist, just as Whitney was on the night you saw her <laughs> at Carnegie Hall. She is a fully formed artist at the 2021, 20, you know, on the Porter Wagoner show. That woman wrote I Will Always Love You, Jolene, uh, The Bridge, and so many other insane songs. I think she's an alien sent down from another planet.
1: Do you know that she wrote Jolene and I Will Always Love You on the same
0: day? It's bonkers. It's totally bonkers. And I will always love you. As I mentioned, I'll just say this to other, to the people listening at home. She was leaving her professional relationship with Porter Wagner, who, uh, you know, he didn't necessarily discover her, but he gave her a platform, uh, that on syndicated television that really helped to launch Dolly's career, but she grew bigger than the show. And that was her sweet message to this, you know, older man to say like, I gotta go. So sorry, bud. Uh, and that it becomes this whole other thing with the, the bodyguard and, uh, speaking of documentaries, the Clive Davis documentary, this is the thing I want to ask you about. Have you seen the Clive Davis documentary?
1: No, it's on
0: Netflix and it's fantastic.
1: I'm going to watch it tonight.
0: And I'll say this for people listening at home. Clive Davis is one of the biggest record execs in the history of recorded music. But my takeaway from that film is he loved Whitney Houston legitimately loved her and he is not responsible for tearing her down he is the one who says this movie that you're in it needs a song it doesn't have a show closer they finished the movie and Clive Davis said to the two I think it's Paramount uh, it, we it, it doesn't have that single so I think Dolly Partons song I will always I think it will work and he was right. Cut to it's one of the biggest songs of all time.
1: He's a genius. He is a, a, a nurturer of in in the most extraordinary and manner.
0: and so that I say to you, watch the uh, watch the documentary and get back to me because we assume I assume that record industry people are assholes and they will tear you down when you're no longer useful to them. But this is a guy who. Who really protects his favorite artists?
1: You know what I think is interesting too. Just now, when you were talking about Dolly, I feel like two things. First of all, talking about um, how Whitney's albums were, you know, best selling this and to this day the best selling that and whatever. I feel like it, that that distinction is all the more, more extraordinary because that occurred before pre digital. That because you said physical copies, and that's what what clicked that off of my head. That I mean, now I can just buy the song, like I, yes, I'll admit it. And I think, you know, that I I have a predilection for this song. I love that song dynamite by BTS. (laughs) I'm a 15 year old girl who likes her K-pop, but I can buy just dynamite, you know? And back then you couldn't buy just one. I had to at least buy the 45 of dynamite and whatever was on the flip side. You can just tell the children what 45s are. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, uh, but I mean, that's, those records are all that much more extraordinary that we, this was taking place pre all the way you buy music today. Anyway. And the other side of it is I, I thinking about Dolly, like on uh, the Porter Wagner show, for example, I saw her in concert a few years ago. She's one of the more recent concerts that I've seen. And um, her persona, her stage persona has kind of never wavered. And I feel like she's one of those artists that has not had the crack that we were speaking of before the mental crack that we've been speaking of before. And I think it's because she came up in a particular time where she was able to control her own image and insisted on it in its way and never gave that up. And so no one else had control of her, but her and whether or not look, it's very clear, like in the concert, the jokes that she tells are not off-the-cuff jokes. These are the jokes she tells everywhere she goes and and all that kind of stuff. But in the end, then she's the one playing 15 instruments in this concert. P.S., every one of them was bedazzled. It was amazing. They all glittered and glowed. Um, but, you know, that, that seems to almost be the difference, that she was lucky enough, if you want to phrase it that way, to happen to come up. And get out from underneath because she could have just been satisfied to stay in the Porter Wagner uh, universe and not reach out on her own. But she did it and sort of like just in the nick of time. But she's been able to keep up this like, you know, I'm I'm just a girl from, from Pigeon Forge and never fell into the world of, and this is my mansion and these are my cars and this is all this kind of extraneous stuff. And she wrote her music.
0: She's immense. I think people have underestimated her from day one. I think they still do, even though she's one of the biggest stars on the planet. The The thing that I love about Dolly, and she started doing this on the Porter Wagner show, the way that she jokes while she's singing and improvises and, and cause she and Porter used to tease each other when they were singing and change lyrics to send each other messages during the song, fun messages she, and I've watched her do that with other performers, and sometimes you'll see, like, she'll do that with Kenny Rogers, I've seen old videos, where he's not exactly expecting that to come. And it's amazing, because that's just how, she has so, she's so in control that she can take a step off the song. It's incredible.
1: It is incredible, it is incredible. And and the fact that she's still, her output is still, she still writes all the time, and as much as you do or do not, I'll uh, uh, just sidebar, As much as you do or do not know Mariah Carey, you cannot deny all I want for
0: Christmas. Oh, no, no, I totally, 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 totally. But when she hit, I mean, you know, that was I think she hits around the time of Nirvana ish. Uh,
1: Yes, she hit. I I remember because I was in (laughs) my boyfriend at the time's car with his mom and uh, Vision of Love came on the radio and his mom went. Who is that? Like we were both like,
0: blah. so whatever
1: um, he was like about 90 or 91.
0: Okay. Yeah. So that makes sense to me because so at that time there's zero chance that pop music is going to penetrate my silly little uh, bubble, my, my elitist bubble of. Uh,
1: but I'm going to say, I'm going to say about your elitist bubble, something I absolutely adore about you is that you have your favorite and that's, you should have your favorite, but you are completely open to other genres of music for the sake of respect. And I think that's a fantastic thing. Like if I were, I'm not into, I I had a group of friends who were heavy into Ozzy and Rush and, and all of that. So I know a very peripheral, but like I know Tom Sawyer and, and when Randy Rhodes died, I remember they were all weeping. I, that was all very clear to me, but, um, I would go to one of those concerts with you because you would, it would be like going to see, like, I'm not, I don't know a lot about the Marvel universe, for example, (laughs) but I have become obsessed with WandaVision. And I have now gone down all the rabbit holes of the people on
0: YouTube who do the Easter eggs for every, like, I know that- I I am a metal, I'm a metal and a punk rock Sherpa. And by the way, quick tangent, and I'm going to delete this is coming up on the Brando Cast because her husband is one of my best friends. Well, they both went to Northwestern. Following the critical and commercial success of My Love Is Your Love in 1998, Houston renewed her contract with Arista for 100 million bucks. However, her personal struggles began to overshadow her career, and Houston's 2002 album, Just Whitney, received mixed reviews. Her drug use and tumultuous marriage to singer Bobby Brown received widespread media coverage. After a six-year break from recording, Houston returned to the top of the charts with her final studio record, I Look To You, in 2009. Sadly, on February 11, 2012, Houston was found dead in her room at the Beverly Hilton, right before the Grammys. The coroner's report showed that she had accidentally drowned in the bathtub with heart disease and cocaine as contributing factors. Houston was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2020. I, you know, I'm not ready for the Whitney Houston biopic. I say, leave that alone. It's too soon. But I-,
1: no, I think they did one somewhere, but no, I'm, I don't, I don't want to see that. I, 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 do, I, I do have to say uh, two things. One of which, when you believe that song that, w- that was just playing, just to flip it all full circle is from the animated film, Prince of Egypt. And uh, yes, and um, the composer of that song is Stephen Schwartz, who wrote the musical Wicked, which I did on Broadway. Wait for it, there's more. In my Carnegie Hall debut, it was an evening of Stephen Schwartz. And one of the songs I had to sing was what? When You Believe. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. And I never, ever put all of that together till just now.
0: That is ridiculous. Okay, so wait. So that night, w- was it a celebration of, of Stephen Schwartz music?
1: Yeah, there were like five of us in the concert. We sang a bunch of of songs, but one of the songs that I sang was that. Yeah.
0: Oh, that is fucking fantastic. So when you are performing a song by someone that you love, and I know this, I have my own answer for this. How do you sprinkle your own magic on it and also honor the original as a fan? Do you know what I mean?
1: Yes, I I, t- I totally do. Um, I think the because the majority of what I do, uh, is something someone else has already done. You know, like in Wicked, I I was the fifth witch. You know, I but in Wild Party, in the show that I did with Brian, I was the first. I I've gotten to originate several shows, and that's always the one you want. Because it just feels so um, delicious to be a part of the actual creation of it. So then when you get to the part where you're like, now I'm singing a song that someone else originated. First of all, I try to run all the way back to what the notes on the page are. Because people aren't usually singing exactly what was written. So I can at least start from there. And if it's someone, I'm never going to attempt to be Whitney Houston. Not on my best day. Am I ever going to attempt that? So I, this sounds so like thespian or whatever, but I I honestly try to go to, well, what's the story? I mean, in Wicked, for example, Adina Menzel, who was the original um, uh, Elphaba, the original Green Witch, uh, <laughs> bringing it all full circle yet again, she was the fourth principal in The Wild Party. It was me, Brian Darcy James, Tay Diggs, and Idina Menzel. But I can't sing like Adina, Adina sings like Adina. So I had to and I was very intimidated by that. And, but I had to go, okay, well, what's the, where's the acting angle? I'll walk into it vocally via the acting angle. A song like When You Believe, especially when it's, um, it's one thing when it's in the movie, but the way it was released with Whitney singing it, with Mariah, actually, uh, it was, it's a pop song. You know, it's not, it's not entirely really presented as a narrative. Or anything like that. So I think that evening for for me, honestly, (laughs) was just getting through every song because I was so nervous that I was at Carnegie Hall for some reason. I couldn't be like, what? You've played a bunch of halls. It's just another hall in another town. I'm like, no, it's not. You're lying to yourself, ma'am. But I feel like the people who've done it before are on my shoulder and they're all helping me. I can look to them all to steal little things from them, but I would never attempt to do what they do because I can't. I mean they can't do what I do but whatever
0: who cares I can't do what no, she does No totally understood uh, Here's another qu- question if I may do you ever if you're doing something like people from Ohio come to New York and they're going to wicked and maybe they saw Dina do do that role and they expect a certain thing are you aware of that need from the audience sometimes does that make sense
1: Yes, that absolutely makes sense, especially with a show like Wicked. I mean, now because Wicked's been playing for like 17 years or some madness. The Wicked fans are just like the Marvel fans or the Star Wars world or whatever. They're passionate. They are rabid. And they love who they love. And, um, and woe to you if you are not their favorite witch. They get nasty, the fandom. And my opinion on it is... I call it the green girl sisterhood. Cause I'm like, I know how difficult it is. And when I did it only like four other people knew how difficult it is now 17 years worth of people of tours and international productions and understudies. There's a lot, not a lot, but there is a larger group of women who know uh, h- how hard it is. And so I just try to be like, Hey, it's hard. Can I help you in any way? Is there some, I, I mean, I can't do it for you, but if there's a, trick you want to know, I don't know, like something to help you, I'll help you because we all need help. And and the best you can do is in Wicked, also specifically in Wickedland, there's a big thing about their first witch. Like I've many times had, oh, you were my first alpha It doesn't mean you're their favorite, but you were their first. And so that's a thing. And, and again, I have to as best I can, I do not always succeed at this because sometimes it gets the better of me, but like, I, I just have to go, I cannot compare, contrast myself with Adina or any other. I had seen every woman who had played it up until then who were all extraordinary. I cannot compare myself to them. It's impossible. Someone else might be doing that, but it's not my job. I'm just trying to, to again, that's
0: why I have to go through the story. Can I Can I blow your mind a little bit? Okay. Uh 1993 Brendan Smith did a, an improv show uh for a few months with uh Anna Gosstier.
1: That's who I replaced on Broadway.
0: Yes, yes, a, a an improv Jedi. Julia, we've been talking for over an hour and all you did was crush it. <laughs> I think I feel like I've been in some sort of like musical theater school cuz that is not my wheelhouse either. If theater ever comes back, you want to go see a musical?
1: I'll take you, and I'll be like, "Here's the deal." And then afterwards, we'll go out, and I'll be like, "Okay, here's the real deal," and I'll tell you like the gossip behind it.
0: Well, that is that's the stuff that everyone needs to know, right? I'll spill tea yeah. for you. Well, you know, I would <laughs> I would imagine, depending on the show, one of my favorite Onion headlines is "Area Waitstaff Tired of Sleeping with Each Other." So, <laughs> <laughs> so I would assume, knowing a little bit about the theater, that depending on the company or the show or whatever, blah, 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 blah. etc. etc. Okay, well, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for playing the game of the BrandoCast, Julia. It is so good to see you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, thank you, Mr. B. You. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for listening, liking, subscribing. We got so many great guests coming down the pike. And of course, the BrandoCast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time, Cats and Kittens. From the moment I saw you, I went out of my mind. Oh, I never believed in love at first sight. But you got a magic, for that I just can't explain. Well, you gotta you got a way that you make.